Welcome to The Stumbling Spirit, Contemplations on the Path of Resilience. Whether you realize it or not, you are resilient. It's your birthright. As you take in your next breath, know this truth. It's not only about your capacity to overcome difficult situations, but it's about your courage to do the necessary work to heal, learn, grow, and move forward. What you gain is invaluable wisdom. And it's through these hard stumbles in life that we often discover a new purpose that aligns with our spirit. My name is Fabio De Silva Fernandez, Reiki master, mindfulness coach, and mystical explorer. Join me weekly as the Stumbling Spirit podcast highlights the lives of extraordinary people like you, sharing transformative stories and beneficial practices of resilience to guide you on your wellness journey. Michelle Chabon invites stillness and mortality into her practice on a daily basis. She has her PhD in clinical thanatology, is founder of Mindfulness Studies at University of Toronto, and teaches several certificate programs there, including mindfulness-informed end-of-life care. For much of her career, Michelle applied both skill sets as a social worker, counseling patients and their families in the palliative care center at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. Today we discuss dying and death, the role that mindfulness can play to ease suffering, and we learn more about Michelle herself and the life-changing event that led her towards contemplative practice and caregiving. To me, Michelle is mystical teacher, wisdom keeper, captivating storyteller, and inspirational friend. It's a privilege to have Michelle Chabon on the show. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Fabio. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you. One of my favorite stories that you tell is about the birth of the landscape where your northern chalet sits. Can you please share that story? Yes, I can. So I live in Toronto in the GTA, but I also live up north, which is my refuge. I have to live in nature so that my mind is held and I'm a part of nature, my mind and body. So I live in a valley up north, and it's one of seven fjords. And this is the oral tradition of this area. Seven fjords that were created with the last ice age. These fjords were attached to a salt sea of some kind. So some people say that was Georgian Bay, and some say that it was James Bay. There's lots about this valley that is significant. There's an aquifer underneath us. There are more fossils on the top of the mountain that braces the fjord than there are on Georgian Bay or on the seasides. And so that means that there was a lot of marine activity in the area. And one of the things, even though it's fairly um, built up in certain areas, is that as people are excavating for their homes, they're finding full whale bones, impressions of what's left of the whale, as well as a great deal of bone limestone. And it's said that the whales used to come down from this salt sea into the fjord and simply allow themselves to die. So I was heading north to do some teaching in palliative care, and I got lost, uh, and I know the area really well, and pulled over to the side of the road, and as I pulled over, I just felt the most amazing peace, stillness, and resonance at the top of this fjord, and I had traveled extensively, and I'd never been in this valley. 
As I looked out over it, I sat there not panicking that I was lost and that I had a, a lecture in about half an hour, but just really marinated in that piece and went home and told my husband that I found this extraordinary valley. And two days later, he went skiing in the area and came home and said, I found this extraordinary mountain. And so we both then went north the next weekend to find this valley. It said that the whales came there because of the peace and the resonance perhaps the aquifer. It would be sort of an equivalency, I think, of a drumheller in that there are bones there that we haven't really explored, or if we have, then we just cover them over. And it's a UNESCO site in Ontario. Whether it's a true story or not, it's a story I've heard three or four times from three or four different people. I've contacted First Nations to ask them what their memory of this is, and they're talking about having a fire in honor of the whales that are there. And I can say that the peace of that valley is quite extraordinary, and that's the energy, I think, that comes from being an aquifer, a fjord, a forest, a burial site for a lot of marine life, and under the Milky Way. I wanted to start off with that story because of the invitation and the allowing of death that these whales undertook as they ventured into the fjord. And now it's a place of much life after so much death. And this is a part of your life's work. Why is mortality generally difficult to discuss in this day and age? Well, I think there's a, a lot of reasons for it. And the first one that, you know, I as a scholar in the field would say is that, you know, there's gen intergenerational patterns that we pass on through our families, through society, through civilization. And historically, death has not been something that we've been able to manage. It just came upon us suddenly and Uncle Joe or Aunt Martha would be found having dropped dead. And this was a shock and also awful. We also didn't know always what the reason was that somebody died. So we didn't have things like autopsies and the studies of how one dies. So with those two factors in mind, the way that I would teach that understanding of the ineffable or unspeakable parts around dying and death is that that people would, in the Middle Ages, had the experience of the Black Death. So that was a, a pandemic, uh, and it took a huge portion of the world away from us. They thought that the pandemic was a spiritually driven thing, and they thought that strangers who they didn't know often brought the energy of death to their villages. So it became really important that if a stranger came, you chased them away, that if there was illness, that you know you took care of the person, but you started praying, and not necessarily for their soul, but for their recovery, and you're not catching it. And what we know about the Black Death is that uh, we think it was on fleas uh, that came in on the rats, that came in on the boats through the waterways of Europe. And so this was something that was very physical. And we also had creatures that could get in and out of towns very quickly, perhaps searching for food. So our understanding of death was that it was like a cloud that came over us and stole people away. Now we have a different kind of dying and death. And that is that with so much diagnostic uh, technology that we can predict and anticipate a disease. It, it, the disease has a behavior. That behavior uh, will unfold over time. Someone will take treatment. 
how one takes treatment and what one takes as treatment and how one takes that treatment. So in other words, one's attitudinal approach really influences how one survives or doesn't survive. And so with all the alchemy of of that coming together, when do we start to speak about dying and death? When is the dying process? So I always say dying begins the moment we're conceived and parents create a child so that that child will die. Now, that's not a cynical approach, but it is the way to look at the fact that um, as Senator Carstairs, uh, the Canadian Senate said, 100% of us will die. There's no statistic in medicine where there's 100% of us that will have something happen to them. Not 100% of us will live. Not 100% of us will get cancer. Not 100% of us will uh, even get COVID. When we start to look at what dying and death is in a contemporary society, against the backdrop of fear, terror, suspicion, not knowing what it is, thinking that we should be able to fight it with prayers and rituals, which work in terms of their impact on a person if they're a believer. We never really learned to speak about it. Most of our ancestors did rituals around dying and death, and most of it were very distinct, like dying had its own approach of rituals, and then death had its own, and then visiting our ancestors had another set of rituals. Rituals often don't speak about things, they act them out. So today in modern society, death is predictable from the moment we're conceived, but we don't deal with it. We deal with how to live. And I think that that is a very good stance to have. But death literacy, so that people aren't terrified by what is unspeakable, I think should begin as an integral part of life. And my family came out of World War I and World War II. They had tales from the work that they did in those wars. And they came back and they had a theology of dying and death, of how one faces dying and death, and how one continues to live on after dying and death. You know, my father used to have me sit on his lap and he would speak to me about the wisdom of what he learned when he was in the war. And my grandmother would talk about courage and bravery in the face of great despair and demise. I can't claim that I'm a genius for integrating dying and death into life. It was part of my ancestral teaching, but not all the children in my family necessarily listened to the lessons. And I loved the lessons. They were delivered by story and narrative that spoke about a greater humanity and how you walk with that humanity. So how do you walk having you know, bombed a city or something like that? I think the reason that we can't speak about it is we don't have mentors to speak about it. We don't learn the language of it. The language itself of English really only has one noun and one verb, which is death and dying, to speak about dying and death. We've lost a lot of our rituals. Those come through religion and culture. We keep them, but we don't necessarily even know sometimes that they were there to support us in the process of grieving someone. And then probably in the well, the turn of the century, psychiatry and psychology uh, got a hold of dying and death and said, let's talk about grief and bereavement. And grieving is what you do before death takes place and bereavement is what takes place afterwards. And so we psychologized dying and death and almost forgot what dying and death was all about as long as we were dealing with feelings. thing is that a lot of our feelings went underground because there was an element of contagion 
same thing as that happened in the Black Death, a contagion within our families. If a parent is seen grieving in front of their children, the child might be sad and that we wanted to create happier children. And so people started to go outside of their homes and their villages to seek counseling from uh, their minister, their chaplain, their imam, uh, their rabbi, and then come home and look like everything was normal. They also went to psychologists, psychiatrists, and social workers. So we displaced dying and death from the center of the family. We also had a good portion of people dying in hospitals and long-term care facilities. So children didn't have the experience of actually seeing what dying and death was all about. And in the over-medicalization of care, and I would say over-medicalization, in the pursuit of longevity and perhaps even immortality, that people get disenfranchised from the experience. And most people would say, good, that's a good thing. I don't want to um, see it, know it, be a part of it, if I can be avoidant. The element is that it might make me sad, it might make me sick, it might make me have to live with some trauma. And it's my experience that if uh, dying and death is handled well, with people that know what's going on, and they educate the family, so a team educating a family, that a family can negotiate this to actually be a spiritual tipping point or uh, a component of the resiliency for generations to come. And you do that by putting the dying person in charge of the legacy they want to leave for others about how they want to be remembered and what they want to remember. And so people start deepening their social connectivity as they are letting someone make the transition. You know, the irony of people being avoidant of the topic of death is that they themselves have a death culture and their families have a death culture. And you described the death culture within your family by the stories and tales and lessons that your family shared with you. So why is it important to understand what our death culture is? As you know, I have a, I'm a mindfulness meditation practitioner. I'm not Buddhist. I'm Christian and ecumenical. Um, but one thing the Buddhists taught me was the practice of dying and death and how important it was for what they believe is our life after death. So that's not so different from Christianity or Judaism or Islam, but it is about having to live a life that when you come to your deathbed, you don't say, look, I'm not ready because I have to go back and make up for all the people I offended, all the money I stole, all the crimes that I did. So I think that if you live a life, and this is one of my practices, if today was my last day in life, who do I need to reach out to that I have hurt or offended? Who do I need to reconcile with? What are the unfinished pieces of my life? And not wait to the final hours of your living as you're tipping over into dying and death, but live that every single day. Death is a very powerful leveling platform for any form of I'm better than you are. You have offended me. I don't like you. It's not that you have a fake self. It's actually an invitation for an authentic self and a second response if you've had a dispute with somebody. I practice dying every day. Uh, people who know me know that that is my practice. My practice is not morbidly lying down and pretending I'm dead. It is actually just simply to set out with the intention every day that, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, let my feet kiss the earth that everybody I meet is a gift and here to help. And then as a, and I'm not a positivist, but everybody here, even the person that hurts me 
is here for me to do a deep chewing on an issue and processing it. And then at the end of the day, I ask, you know, what things I'm grateful for? What would I do differently? What I have to do tomorrow to set today on a better course? And this becomes a series of days that we just simply live an intentional life. Or as the whales did, they came to the valley for a purpose. And they knew what that purpose was. And they settled into the earth. And it was home to them. And so they came home to a place of stillness and peace. It becomes a remarkable thing that does death and and does the dying part of death serve a purpose to make us become more of ourselves? It's my experience that that is true. And I worked with uh, a lot of people who had experienced genocide. They were terrified of death because they'd seen so much of it in their lifetime. And now they were facing it again. And for my team and I to be able to walk in, find that history out just through our dialogue, and then say, tell me what it is that you want to happen. And more importantly, tell me what you don't want to have happen. So we will try to protect you from that. And so we would actually write in the care plan, the things that would be harmful to the person in the family. And then over the course of time, we would ask them what we needed to do for their family in their name. So how do we care for your partner, your children, the persons that aren't at the bedside because they can't bear this? And we would work as a team in a hospital, but we'd also reach out to the community nurses that were going into the home with that care plan. So there was a continuity of care. There was a, an awareness of what it was that we were dealing with. And some of the research in those days when I was working in palliative care, which would be up to, um, you know, sort of the mid 2005, I guess. Um, and then I've gone on to do teaching of my work in, my, as in mindfulness end of life care is that we found out that we could bring comfort, peace, even joy to people. Some of the research coming out then said that people who had a good palliative care actually lived longer than those who were taking anti-disease therapy. So I don't know that that's still the case because we've advanced so much in terms of our anti-disease therapy, but it's, it's something that should be out there is that the quality of your life does not necessarily depend on aggressive anti-disease therapy and the quantity of your life may not necessarily be dependent upon it. But if you're making a choice in life, anti-disease therapy that's aggressive or experimental is something that can take your life as well. And it can also induce as many symptoms that cause you distress. And so people think, I'll take these treatment, anti-disease treatments and I will live longer. That's not necessarily true. If you take the treatment, you may live longer, but you may be sicker and you may not know when to get off the bus and it becomes harder. Trying to find good palliative care in our culture today can be difficult because it's actually a skill set and a knowledge base that you have to train for. And it's not just about passively attending to dying. It's having the team stay ahead of you in terms of symptoms, allowing you to stay at home, sometimes up till the moment you die and after. But you, you have to have not really severe symptoms to be able to allow that to take place. And we pursue quantity more than quality of life uh, when we're given a diagnosis of dying and death. 
And I think that science and healthcare has a responsibility to look at really good informed consent about how the person wants to die and how they don't want to die. And not allowing this craving and striving and betting that if there's only 5% chance of me living, I'm going to take it without them talking about what the quality of that life would be. So for me, my primary motivation is not just looking at quality of dying and death, but really looking at the quality of living, not only for the person who's dying, but also their family members who are left with the memory of what it is they went through. We need to be able to look at, I think, gentle passages that allow for a good fight, but also when to say, okay, can we stop the fight and flight and just pause and tend and befriend and abide and reside? Uh, And all those are stress responses. What choice would you make? Some people will go for fight and flight. I would go for tend and befriend, abide and reside, only because I think there's a lot of suffering in life. And why induce that even more so in your last months and years of living? What you're talking about is developing a language of suffering for those people who are dying. And that was part of your care plan in dealing with people that have gone through traumatic experiences, such as genocide and other things. Why is it important to develop a language of suffering? So a language of suffering actually comes from the theologian Dorothy Sowell. And when I was studying as a theologian, reading Dorothy Sowell, I thought to myself, well, you know, psychology and psychiatry deal with the language of suffering. Chaplaincy deals with it as well. Medicine certainly tries to treat suffering. So I'm not sure that they get to the place of developing a language of suffering. They're trying to always manage suffering. So I actually wanted to take up Dorothy Sowell's thoughts on this and see if we could develop narratives around suffering. And if you look at our fairy tales and teaching tales, they're full of suffering, whether it be Cinderella or Snow White or the Knights Templar or however it is, you know, even Star Wars, full of suffering. But in those situations, there is a a turning point, a tipping point where the universe acts and suddenly Cinderella's got the the glass slipper and the prince. And it doesn't always turn out that way. It, It sometimes turns out that she's got to walk bare feet for a long time and hang out with her unpleasant stepsisters. I wanted to look at the layers of expectation that people have in life, how they move forward and live their life even in the presence of suffering. So I I would ask this question, how is it that uh, a Ukrainian family gets up every day and goes and tries to find water and food? How is it uh, a Russian parent who has lost their son or daughter to a war that they don't believe in? How do they get up? These are deep suffering moments, and they are not exceptional to Russia or Ukraine. Even now, you know, with Syria and and other places in Africa. And so when we start to look at suffering, it's everywhere. And that perhaps to survive, our ancestors learned, don't pay attention to those that are suffering. Just be myopic and carry on with what it is you need to do. Well, as we've shifted into a global society and we're more aware and we've got technology, we're hearing about the suffering in Sudan. We're hearing about the suffering in Russia and Ukraine. We're hearing about the First Nations suffering uh, that has lasted over hundreds of years. And we live on that same land and did not know that history. 
And so I feel it's my responsibility to listen to that suffering, to feel into it and imagine what it is to have been treated that way. So it's not that suffering is necessarily anti-life. It is, I think, an essential cradle in life. And it is the stuff of life that we birth ourselves from. So a baby's born crying, and then we hold it, and we hold that suffering. And what a huge transition for a baby to come out of a mother's womb and hearing the mother's heartbeat and the father's voice, um, or the parents' voices and heartbeat. And suddenly that child is in a place of tremendous light, and they don't understand what's happened to them. We reach out and hold that child. So can we hold the suffering of the world and just simply say, what one thing can I do today to make this just a little bit better? The assumption has always been, at least in my lifetime, and I'm 72 now, is that I can fix this situation. I can bring remedy to this suffering. And I don't think that that's true. I think that as soon as we better a situation, then our attention goes to another place of great suffering. Because suffering is not evil. It is just simply the nature of the conditions of life. And so I want to have my attention be aligned to that rather than myopic. And whether it be somebody who's dying, who's in Toronto, in a very good setting, very good organization being taken care of, or whether it's somebody in Toronto who is a street person who has an extensive history of abuse and that they dealt with their abuse through drug taking, and now they're dying on the greats at a very young age because their lifestyle of keeping safe was more important than going into housing. Uh, or putting themselves in the hands of an authority figure because they, they just had abuse when they were young and they can't bear to trust themselves to somebody. I want to take care of all of that. I want to see all of it. I don't want to be myopic. I might not be able to change it, but I want to be informed about it. And it does not make me sad or despairing in a long term. It makes me have a call to action about what one thing can I do. So the person on the grates, can I go and get them a Tim Horton so that when they wake up on the grates, that they've got some tea and something to eat? Is there something that I can do to help the Russian-Ukrainian war and by perhaps helping somebody who's a refugee here uh, in Canada? So suffering is the loam or the soil of life, and love is the response to that. Love, attachment, connectivity. And the dying often, uh, historically, were put at the end of the halls of our hospitals and left to die because they had their needs were little and the nursing stations were busy taking care of more acute patients. And palliative care changed that, and it's changed that within maybe the last 50 years with saying the dying person will be put nearer to the nursing station until they're transferred into a palliative care unit where there'll be more nursing hours per patient than an acute care facility. So what's important in life? Is it that we take care of the young and <clears throat> returnable to work people? Or are we going to take care of people that lived their life, gave to society, and now can no longer take care of themselves? And I want to be in a position to help them make this transition. It's a heart-based practice. What can complicate the conversation of dying and death, and most certainly can add suffering, or if you might look at it a different way, alleviate suffering is assisted dying. So in Canada, we have medical assistance in dying or MAID. 
How has the introduction of MAID changed the conversation of dying and death in Canada? Big question, Fabio, so thank you for it. My view on this would not necessarily be my colleagues' views on this. First and foremost, in my my view and my experience, MAID is a decision-making model that people have extended their life beyond its natural limits or they don't want to extend their life beyond its natural limits, and they want to have control over their uh, living, dying, and death. And so they view it as a continuum of mastery and control over their life, that they're not waiting to be courted by Thanatos, the creature of dying and, and death. They are going to choose when it is that they are going to die. So besides being a decision-making model with uh, the team, the made team, it's also a decision-making model about when and where. So you get to plan and you get to understand. So taking the steering wheel of the bus that's careening down the mountain with no brakes. So there's a certain comfort in all of that. Secondarily to the decision-making model, it's also a pharmaceutical model. So if only 50% of us decide to take MAID, eventually, that's a huge amount of money going into the pharmaceutical industry. And so pharmaceutics really has driven a lot of our healthcare system. So we need to be able to ask that question, is this really something that is a personal choice? And if so, how do you want this? And if you are given informed consent upstream to what's downstream, you can navigate your life so that it often is not extended beyond its natural limits. And so for that, you need people who are in palliative care, hospice palliative care, and they will guide you gently into that process. But people are so illiterate around what dying and death is. They feel that the made option is the only choice they have, and that's not the case. But in some parts of Canada, we don't even have hospice palliative care. So people have to go to other parts of, of the province to be able to receive it. That's not okay. And especially with technology today, we could have uh, medical appointments on Zoom with a physician or nurse present to be able to follow through on the expertise that maybe a larger palliative care program could offer. So there's lots of ways we could do this and make it accessible to people. I think it actually should be a, a right in Canada that we have a full disclosure about the resources that are available to people and the options of getting them made available to them. Between the decision-making and the pharmaceutics, the motherhood principles, which I helped write for Health Canada, so I helped write the first standards of practice for palliative care in Canada, that includes family, that includes community, it includes team members. Who do you want on your team? Have you got a favoured doctor or a favoured healthcare provider? Do you also have a specialist that you'd like to advise on this? Do you have a, a local nurse that has been coming into your home to check on you that you want and that he or she might not have palliative care skills, but they know you? So you want them to come in, but you also want somebody who's maybe a clinical nurse specialist in another part of the province that might advise that nurse if you're in a rural population that has no palliative care. And then there's family and that 
Health Canada said in my, in my time, and they might have changed this, that if a person is dying, there is about five people that are involved in the family. And that's based on a demographic of looking at how large families are. So maybe two parents and three kids or three siblings. But a family is so much bigger. I'm a family therapist and families are so much bigger. So you think about who's in your family and how your chosen family might extend out to tens, hundreds of people. There would be different levels of family for you. How could we include all of them? even if they're in different countries or different parts of this country, different cities. And my family, I don't have children, but I have a huge number of people that are my friends and my colleagues. I, as a teacher, have international colleagues. And these are all people that would want to be kept informed about what's going on and also to bid me farewell. And that would take a lot of work. And so is healthcare going to fund that? And so they cut off the family component and said, MAID will mostly just be a pharmaceutical and decision-making model. The thinkers in MAID, thought contributors, might disagree with me on this, but I've had a MAID physician who was helping somebody close to me die say to me, you know, Michelle, and they knew me, they had worked with me historically. They said, Michelle, we don't usually have family members come and sit as we're delivering MAID. And I said, that's horrifying to me. It's horrifying to me, both for the person who's dying, that they've had to have to have something uh, that's of a secret nature rather than a, a family nature, and that this person is alone in their death with strangers who they are trusting. And it's not that there's an issue of mistrust. It's about the social connectivity. And World Health Organization, WHO, and Health Canada say social networks are one of the most strongly determiners of longevity. So imagine that you've taken care of your dying partner for years and years. And so death still sneaks up on you. It's a surprise because they've survived for so long. And then they decide that they're going to have made. And they may or may not discuss it with you as partner. They may go to the team first and discuss it with them, gather the information. They might say, we don't want you to talk say to the team, we don't want you to talk to our family member. And so that's another discussion about disclosure. The idea that family's not necessarily showing up is another example of how we stay death illiterate, because they don't get to experience what this is. And having experienced several made deaths, it's quite a beautiful experience, but I made sure everybody showed up. And so the community held the person who was dying, either in their thoughts, their meditations, or their hands and feet. We were just in the room together, and that person died, and they rested very similarly to the whales sinking to the fjord that I live in. That's one part of the complexity of MAID, and I've given very strong feedback to Health Canada and the researchers saying, how can you possibly disarticulate relationships from the dying process or the death process with MAID. And I know I'm not the only family member that's shown up or friend uh, in a chosen family shown up to watch somebody die of MAID, but I think there needs to be more facilitation of that, which would require a lot of death education by somebody. And it could even be done by video if we had to. It's not the costs that are keeping us from doing this. And then I just think in terms of health itself. When MAID was introduced, uh, I was hearing um, in Toronto, there was a huge rift between 
the people that were prepared to step up and offer aid and those who felt that they couldn't do it based on uh, their own moral tenet. People were horrified on both sides. And so we actually diminished those of us who work and dine and death because we drew a line in the sand and said, which side are you on? Rather than if you make a decision that you can't be present to offer maid or be actually a facilitator of maid, then you're over here and I'm over on the other side and never the twain shall meet. As opposed to saying, I understand the moral compass of your life. Let's try and call somebody else in that can support this care so you don't have to cross a moral line. And we stayed focused on functionalism more than we did on compassion for the team members. I say with great compassion in my heart, we should be allowing for people to provide health care from a heart-based action. And compassion should be central to health care. And that includes for the team members rather than having them have an, a moral crisis induced. And then I guess the third piece of this, besides what it is for the dying to die without their family members around, or for family members to go into MAID without full education about what they're going to see, the team members having a rift based on moral conscience and us not honoring moral conscience necessarily. The third piece is, so what if a family is either present for MAID or not present for MAID? And they see and hear that their family members died. They go into a funeral. They may or may not talk about the fact that their family member took maid because there is a social stigma still around people who choose dying and death by maid. They might actually have the death go underground and they'll just grieve at the funeral home for the death, not for the method of the death. And so then they've now inherited a secret story that they can't talk about. And some people justify it and say, it's good that I don't have to talk about the fact that my husband chose an act of death rather than staying another day. And so there are all these death narratives showing up in our practices of people who have a secret story around dying and death. There are also equally people that feel very comfortable and brave by saying my family member chose maid. But that's still going to affect them because when it comes to their grieving and say at month three of, of their bereavement, people often say, I wish I had just five minutes more with this person, or I wish that I had an opportunity to be a better person as caregiver. I was exhausted and I yelled at them. Well, when they say that and somebody's taken maid, then they realize that that person took their life rather than stay around and be with them. And so there are a whole group of, of narratives showing up around, I wish I, I as caregiver had done this differently. I wish that I had time to make this up to them. And so there is real shame and blame showing up as well. And those might not be something that people do research on or study because we're all so busy in healthcare. Who has time to go in search of those stories? Healthcare is very much disease-oriented these days. There are counselors, but there are not enough counselors. How many people that are coming online as counselors are really studying thanatology in the course of dying and death and are living with dying and death? <clears throat> I've seen a, a difference in the narratives that are burgeoning with MAID being offered. And again, I give feedback. Somebody needs to be studying this but it needs to be a social scientist or a humanities-based thinker. 
to be able to bring this forward. There's a group uh, of people around the world, a movement that I was involved in that similar to the doulas and the, the midwives that help children be born and parents negotiate birthing. There's a group of Thanadulas that is showing up in Europe and Canada, and people say Canada started it, and they're starting to look at being the midwives to the person who is dying and also the doulas to the family. But this group will need very complex theory on pain and symptom management, healing, which is to make whole, allowing for the transition into dying, then death, then bereavement. So they have to be, in my view, pretty good support people. Uh, they don't necessarily always have to be clinicians, but they need to be attached to somebody in case a clinician is needed. I also think somebody like you who does energy work is also somebody that family members could call upon because the body grieves, not just the heart, not just the brain, the body grieves. And to be able to do some somatic work at whatever level one's doing it, to be able to have a team of people that are helping you move this grief rather than bury it. Because I do think that unresolved grief can lead to issues with your immune system, your cardiac system, and certainly just overall health as we grow older. You mentioned the importance of developing a social network, and yet dying and death is a lonely process. There's the shared suffering, and then there's the individual suffering. You had your own brushes with death, the main one being when you were hit by a drunk driver in your mid-20s. Can you tell us what happened and what your life was like prior to that fateful event? Yes, I'm happy to. So in my teens, I lived a very vibrant, wonderful life. And I think living that life never let me lament that I hadn't lived a life. So I had a very full, joyful, playful life. I, I left high school and looking for a job, got a job at Elizabeth Arden Salons, and they were the red door spas that were around the world. I trained as an esthetician and did modeling for them as well, and was known as Miss Arden Canada, where my name and my picture were in the papers on a weekly basis. So I had a very exciting young life as this person who was modeling and teaching aesthetics to the city hall guides and the TD guides and that kind of stuff. And they were building skyscrapers in Toronto in those days. So they had these guides that would take the public through these beautiful skyscrapers. And it was a wonder to go from a bungalow or two-story house to suddenly these high rises. So they actually had trained guides to speak about how do you build a high rise. So I prepared them to present themselves in public. So I lived a very lovely life. And then I got sick of the modeling piece and the traveling piece. And so I decided to go to university. I was in uh, university for just a year. Uh, and I was on my summer vacation, just about to go out to Fogo Island in Newfoundland with my friends and a drunk driver who thought that he had a right to be in the lane that he was trying to transfer into where we were, rode his very large car over our small Peugeot. And everybody else in the car, there was uh, four of us, had something they could brace themselves with. So my husband had the steering wheel. My friends in the back seat had the back seat, had the front seat to stop them. But I didn't. And I went through the windshield, came back, 
um, impaled myself on the gear shift, which was on the side of the steering wheel. And then my husband had lifted the emergency brake to try and stop the car as we were careening into another lane. And that impaled at the base of my spine, my coccyx. So I had three hits, the top of my head, the base of my spine, and the left side of my spine. And I fractured a large amount of bone on the right side of my spine. So let's fast forward. I stopped walking. I shuffled. Then I couldn't sit. Then I could only lie down. And there was great discomfort even in lying down. What I didn't know was that I'd fractured significant parts of my spine. And in those days, we didn't have fMRIs and we barely had CAT scans. And my memory is that I didn't access a CAT scan for a long time. And then they said that they had CAT scans that they could look at the spine. The accident was when I was 23. At 31, I had my first surgery on my spine and I had had with all the fractures over eight years, I had very large calcified growths. And some of those growths were coming out of my skin. Uh, They were like golf balls to tennis balls growing out. And so my body had with the shock and the trauma of the fracture started to grow bone, uh, to heal those bones and then didn't put the brakes on. And so they just kept growing bone and that bone was pressing down onto my spinal cord in several different places. Uh, and it was also pressing out through the skin, and the skin was about to break. They, they were benign growths, but they were bony growths. Imagine spending your life lying down, sleeping on a tennis ball. Like sometimes that can be acupressure, but this was not. It was just pressure. So they gave me surgery, and they drilled away the excess bone. <clears throat> I had to learn to walk um, for the second time in my life that then, and I did fairly well, although I still shuffled. I took all my classes when I went back to school standing up because I could not sit down as yet. I couldn't walk too far. I couldn't drive. So I had to have a lot of supports from people. Uh, I went on to, I had been studying theology. I went in theology as in human-centered spirituality, what unifies us as a species in nature, with nature, um, beyond nature. Over the course of time, I switched from theology to social work because I could not bear to see people suffering in the hospital from unmanaged pain. And medicine was talking in those days about addiction and pain medication leading to addiction. And I felt from my experience, it wasn't that that issue was that when we were in pain, we took medication. When we got out of pain, we stopped the medication because we didn't need it. And that was a narrative that was like a salmon swimming upstream. A lot of people didn't believe it. So I advocated for pain management on University Avenue. And the first case that I had, I went to a surgeon and said, knowing that what the dialogue, the populist dialogue in medicine was, that we have to be careful of addiction. I said, if I can get this person post-surgically to have their pain managed, they'll want to go home sooner and you'll have the bad sooner. And can I do that? And they said, sure, do whatever you want, but you know, discharge by tomorrow. This person couldn't walk and they were a young person and they were screaming at the top of their lungs because they were in so much pain. I knew that this experience of pain for them would stay with them for a long time if we didn't do something different. So I was fortunate enough to have a nurse clinician at the hospital who had been trained in Montreal, which at the time was the primary hub of palliative care. She came up, ordered some medication as a nurse clinician, and that child was in hours was pain managed and was prepared to go home on pain management to take care of herself and came back um, within a couple of weeks 
off all medication and walking and feeling better. So that first case became our case of one to argue for pain management. And from that original case, we were able to go after not only advocacy, but funding. Uh, and we founded the Tammy Latner Center. And I was the director of the family counseling program, team counseling program. We all worked really hard to try and create comfort or holding space for people who were dying. I just think this is a process of advocacy uh, that people can build a program rather than wait for money for a program. It takes <clears throat> social connectivity. And in my experience as a person who is, a, is differently abled, I knew that I had to be reliant on other people. There was no way that I could have negotiated the next 50 years just by my own steam. So the first person I had to be good to was my husband. And I had to learn how to use my voice to mobilize and motivate him. So I really had a practice of lovingness instead of saying, you know, uh, expletive, get me a, a cup of tea or help me up out of the bed and being angry. I had to be a caring, loving human being. The next group of people I had to motivate was my own family. And the way that I did that was by trying to see them every week, even if it was really hard on me. And the next group of people that I had to motivate were my colleagues and friends. And the people I had attracted as a person who was neurodiverse and living as a differently abled person were often people who wanted to help me. And as I'd get better, they would often feel that they, they weren't needed. And so that the nature of our relationship would change. Now at 71, and having had several other surgeries, and one of them being an 11-hour surgery uh, a year ago, before I ever, well, after I've planned a surgery and I need it for my, my spine or my bones or something, I go out and I create a constellation of people who are going to be my, my support system. And you've been part of that as my care team and friend, but we go forward as a social network. And I put certain people based on their strengths and their relationship with me and how they know me. I put them in charge of supporting my husband. I might put somebody in charge of walking my dog. I might create a micro team of decision makers in case I get myself in trouble and my husband needs counsel with people who know me, who have medical backgrounds or nursing backgrounds. Last year, when I had my 11-hour surgery, I had 10 people that I had invited uh, and worked with over the course of months beforehand, saying, these are my values. This is what it is that I'd like to see happen. If things go awry and I start to die, this is what it is that I would like you to enact, not necessarily trying to prolong my life beyond its natural borders, but rather support my life until I make that transition. And in the transition, these are the people that I would call in and I've already talked to them. So I put in place care people who were a social network. I humorously say to people, start young, build your social network and make sure there are younger people than you in your care plan so they can take care of you when all your friends may not be able to. But my older friends were able to think and to provide stories and values about what I'd like. And the younger ones were able to actually take it into action. So this is a concept that's out there under the social determinants of health that social networks uh, help. I would say that my life from 23 to 71 has been like walking on shards of glass with bare feet. It has been extremely hurtful. 
but life can be hurtful. It's the stuff of life. Suffering is the stuff of life. Very few people who would meet me would know about the shards of glass and the bare feet. And that's because this is my sacred life. And I choose to be joyful and happy and delighted by the simple things in life. Now, I, I became a clinician who had a reputation for her work, not only in Canada, but the States and some would say globally. I became an educator that was global. I had several careers within a career, starting with palliative care, pain management, and then mindfulness-informed end of life, and teaching mindfulness at U of T, because mindfulness really supported me in that suffering. And even I'm shocked at how it supported me. And I don't necessarily think it was an outstanding thing to use my mindfulness to deal with my spinal injuries. But medicine was telling me there was nothing more they can do after that first surgery because I had been operated on once and they just didn't want to go near the fragility of the spine. Until about 18 months ago, a most remarkable, beautiful physician stepped up and said, I'm willing to try. And he was a neuroortho trauma surgeon. And he spelled out for me the risks. And I said, let's take the risks because I can't live this way. And he gave me back a life that I don't remember from maybe when I was 22. I walk better than I've walked since I was 22. And remembering I was a model, so I walk better now. It's a miracle surgery for me because after the surgery, my pain disappeared in my spine that I'd lived with for 48 years. I have to learn how to live anew because I can go outside and walk on my own now. I can take my dog for a walk in the forest and not fall. And my dog is very excited that I somehow started taking her for walks. I get to sit with my friends for hours instead of minutes. I get to sit up at the dining room table rather than finding sitting too difficult to, to eat my meals. And I have bloomed into my sort of second spring at the age of 71, 72 because of a surgeon's hand. I'm deeply grateful for this, but I, I don't know that mindfulness and mindfulness meditation should have been used so well. I, I wish science had got to me sooner, but the truth of the matter is we had to wait till science advanced. I had to stay alive from 23 to 71, and the mindfulness meditation piece helped me. I think next to the surgeon, it's about 80% of what allowed me to live. And to live and transform the suffering. So to enter into the suffering that I lived with, to practice throughout the day, a hundred times a day, where's my mind? Is it on the pain or is it in the possibility? Is it on the sunlight streaming through the lace curtains or is it in the darkness of my despair? I just want to really say whether it's about dying and death or living, that we can take an attitudinal stance towards it all that allows us to step up and into it, hold whatever's unfolding, and watch what emerges, even if it's more suffering, and at the same time, dream of the possibility that this too will end, or it will change. I'm so grateful that you're in a much better place, and that you're not experiencing the same pain. It's something that really fills me up with joy. I'm really, really happy about that. One of the powerful stories that you shared with me very early on in that journey for you was that moment when you were lying in bed in pain and you had this awareness to notice the parts of your body that were not experiencing discomfort. Can you describe that moment for us? 
Sure. And let me give you the backstory to that. So my father fought in World War II. He was a navigator in a mosquito plane. Mosquito planes had a glass bottom. And so the navigator sat on a glass bottom. And so they would easily be shot if there was somebody that was able to hit the plane. They would go for the glass bottom. And if you lose the navigator, you might lose the whole plane as well. So it was a very vulnerable place to sit and and do your job. He was told in the military training that if he got shot in his right leg to focus on the left leg, and if he got shot in the right arm to focus on the left arm, he, without knowing it, in the early years, probably, you know, one to three, so when I was 23 to 25, 26, he saw me in, in terrible pain. They couldn't believe it because I'd gone from being this vibrant young person to essentially an amoeba who could only lie down 23 hours a day, maybe get up for an hour to have tea with my friends or family. So one day he came to me and he said, um, you know, Mish, that this is what I was taught. Maybe you're you're focusing too much on your pain. So that's a normal thing for people to say to people in pain is, you know, get up, get going, stop focusing on your pain, you know, that kind of stuff. And I took my father's wisdom and the pain would be with me as a constant. Uh, in those days, I wasn't on pain medication because people were concerned about addiction. So I was living this raw experience of having three spinal cord injuries and nobody was managing the pain. I was training to be a theologian or, you know, a person who look at human spirituality or nature spirituality or our place in nature and nature's place with us. And so I started to have an internal dialogue with my body. So the first question when I woke up in the morning was, okay, let's see what arrived overnight. Let's see where the pain is. So based on where I slept, there might be some pain because of the pressure on the bed. There could be fluids that didn't get out of my body the day before that were pooling in my ankles. I would just do this attentional training from my toes to my head uh, and say, okay, what's a scan? What, what's going on in my body now? Then I would sort of like map out my pain. What, what we would call now is map it out. Show me where the 10 out of 10 pains are. Show me where the 9 out of 10 pains are. And so then I started to actually draw it so that every day people could say, how are you today? And I just point to the painting because there was no describing what what it was. So I always had paper and colored pens at hand so that I could show people what's a burning pain, what's a a large rock of pain, etc. Trying in ways to express the inexpressible. And over the course of time, I really developed an understanding that our whole body can't always be in pain. We can feel in pain, but there's more site-specific pain and that those require different treatments. So in those days, one might have required massage, one might have required a hot bath with Epsom salts and the magnesium would relax the muscles. So this is over years and years that uh, I began to make a study of pain and suffering. And, you know, as a theologian, I had to drop out of school because I couldn't sit and stand and walk. And so I started to look at if I can't study the subject that I love, let me start to study myself as subject. Let me start to understand what the nature of my suffering is and then started to notice the suffering of others. So over the course of time and decades and doctors and other things, I came to an understanding of pain management 
that now is very reflective of what the Buddhists taught me. So I was already a social worker working on her PhD, working out of Mount Sinai Tammy Latner Center, and uh, I got an invitation to come to Montreal, where His Holiness the Dalai Lama and his associate, Thumpton Jimpa, who's his translator, and a, a group of scientists from the States were meeting. And when I was in that conference, I was so shocked by them teaching us the body scan. And so I can actually say that the practices that I now practice in mindfulness meditation came up through my body. It became an almost indigenous knowledge or innate knowledge within me based on my father's original prompt. Where your attention goes, the energy flows. What's wired is fired into us, which is why pain management is important so that constant firing is shut down. And so in that moment that you're talking about of attentional training without any understanding of the practice of mindfulness and mindfulness meditation, without being Buddhist, with being a young woman who was suffering a great deal from spinal cord injuries, in practicing understanding and companioning with my pain, in it becoming actually a character that I walk with, I realized that my whole body even though it felt like it was in pain, there were places I was not in pain. So when I do a meditation on the body scan with perhaps loving kindness or gratitude for what our bodies have endured, I say to people, so when you start to map out your pain and your suffering or those places that there's illness in you, come down to your baby left toe. And unless you've got a baby left toe injury, what's there? And people discover it's sort of a blank zone often unless they've broken their toe or hurt their foot or something like that. So I decided if I'm in pain in my shoulder, my spine, three places, where am I not in pain? And the pain overrides and dominates and determines our sense of identity. So I went in search of where I wasn't in pain. And I described this as having a tiny pen light in the middle of a forest on a moonless night. And you just have this tiny flashlight. Turn it on and follow what is that light. So I started to shift my attention into looking at where I wasn't in pain. And I found there was a huge landscape of places that I wasn't in pain. And that became my practice, is that when the pain was capturing too much of my attention, I would shift my attention to other parts of my body that were trying to survive and thrive uh, and walk through life. And I know it's very popular now to say, well, your pain is the trauma. I can say that that may be true, but I've had lots of trauma experts uh, work with me and say there's no trauma in me that, you know, my neurological system is overextended because of the amount of pain I've lived with but that they can't find any source of trauma in any of the work that, that I've had done. And yet the surgeons that worked on me said, you were like that with a collapsed spine for years and years and years. And how did you do that? And my answer is attention. So not letting my attention be held hostage by the spinal cord injuries or the social losses or the psychological suffering. So attention, intention, I'm going to try to stay alive for another day and see what happens tomorrow. So some people could say that that's hope-driven, but it's really on the tip of a wish, as Decky Lee would say. It's a tip of a wish that I'm hoping that I can stay alive until the science advances. And then the third component 
is attitudes. And so I seldom became despairing. I'm very silly in life. And so I would laugh with my friends. We'd laugh loud and hard until it hurt. And those three components of attention, intention, and attitudes would turn out 30 years later to be the stuff of mindfulness meditation. It's a triangle of all three skill sets of attention, intention, and attitude. And Dr. Shauna Shapiro came out with that as her paradigm of what it is are, are the meta skills of mindfulness. So I consider myself to have lived a very privileged life of discovery, wonder, curiosity, a case of one that then became a case for caring for thousands and thousands of people. And then waiting, living long enough through the experience of pain and suffering and surgeries to come to a place that I can say, this might help you because it helped me. And that became the pain programs that I worked in. I then turned it into the concept of healing or Halen uh, in 2001 with a colleague of mine. And Halen means to make whole. Curera or curing means to fix. I was not a fixable commodity, but every day I could get up and say, what one thing do I need to do today to make my life just a little bit better so I can endure until science discovers what they need to know to help me? And that was my intention, and it happened last year. So that application of attention, intention, and attitude is what you put into your social work in hospitals, in palliative care, working with those people who were dying. Why is mindfulness important in that arena of healthcare? Again, a beautiful but big question, Fabio. So in my early days, there was a person named Eli Bay who was doing relaxation work and mindfulness is not relaxation work. You might get relaxation as an outcome or an impact, but that's where everything started for me was I'd had my personal experience and suddenly there was this person named Eli Bay and he was talking about you know, stress management and stress reduction. And let's just try to relax into our bodies rather than pumping them up. And so I think that that was sort of an early somatic work around how we use our bodies, how we get out of the ensculled brain into the embodied mind. So my patients were mostly oncology patients. I took care of some of the early, the very earliest AIDS patients in Toronto, some of the AIDS doctors, some of the doctors that had AIDS and were taking care of AIDS patients. So when they went down, the whole community went down. And so the grief work as a model wasn't going to be enough. Pain management wasn't going to be enough. And so I started to work around values and humanities-based thinking, uh, having people start to look at their death thought systems that come up through their families or their cultures or communities. And so I was doing all of that work, which is part of the mindfulness-informed end-of-life care program at University of Toronto. And then 90% of the time, I would see people in their homes who were dying. So we had a home care, palliative care program. And so you were up to your elbows in their suffering in a way that you wouldn't necessarily be in a, in a hospital room. And so I would come in and before I'd start talking and as I ended the session, I would start to do some deep breathing with them and have them just settle into their bed, feel safe. Uh, and then let's start to do some reflection on what's important that I know so I can keep them safe uh, and their families safe. 
So people would buy into that as a legitimate form of existential counseling. It was an existential uh, approach. Then over the course of time, when I went to, and I, I was doing my PhD, so I was writing about the inadequacies of our models to work with people who were seriously ill um, and had a, prog a prognosis of probably dying. And then I went to this Montreal conference and even though I was a theologian and looking at human spirituality, had been looking at the relaxation response and the purpose of breath and the power of breath, I suddenly was exposed to meditation. And there was lots of meditations around in the 60s and 70s, but this was a type of meditation that I hadn't been exposed to. I saw what it did for my own body, so I used my body as a tuning fork. I also saw what it did for thousands of people that were there to learn. And you could see the difference in them having done a, a large group meditation. Then the scientists were there. So Herbert Benson was there from Harvard. Stanislav Grof was there as a holotropic breath teacher. There was lots of teachings on altered states and traits of consciousness. Our teachers were remarkable, and I came back to Toronto, and it changed my life. I then went in search of more training and found it further in the Tibetan tradition, even though I'm, again, not Buddhist. And because the Tibetans had gone through a huge transition with genocide, I thought that they would hold for me a kind of understanding of how do you stand in the presence of dying, death, suffering, existential challenges, and still stay so happy, so joyful. How do you get to be in a refugee camp and come out of it and be like Thumpton Jimpa, who teaches now at McGill? And he was my first teacher. As mindfulness meditation rolled out, particularly in the States, in the United States, uh, as protocols, so mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, these produced remarkable research that allowed us to go forward. And because I was already at U of T and I had been using breath work and consciousness and body work with the dying, I began using the mindfulness meditation I had learned in Montreal, and very specifically a Tibetan tradition. I then reached out to Vietnamese Buddhism, Thich Nhat Hanh, and started to study all of this, but was still a theologian. So every world religion has a contemplative practice. And people who are not interested in a god, people who perhaps love nature, ecology, um, environmentalists, climate change activists, these are people with values, beliefs, and worldviews that also have a contemplative practice. And by contemplative, I mean simply practicing something that brings stillness and awareness to yourself. So with the dying, what I would do <clears throat> is a body scan from toes to head and ask them how they're carrying the day. Ask them to quantify for me, either descriptively in a qualitative way, or through art by drawing me a picture, or by a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the best you've ever felt. Where, where do you sit? And they loved to be seen and understood. So we found a language of suffering that allowed them to express the inexpressible. It wasn't just based on describing the pain, it was based on describing their body and how it was living in that moment. So these were became descriptors rather than evaluators of what was going on. And we started to have personal dialogues about what was going on. The next step 
besides identifying or assessing what was going on, was to try and diminish the suffering a bit. So I would ask the question, uh, how much of that pain and suffering could you live with? And so people say, I'd be happy if you could took 5%, 10% away. So I'd say, well, let's try this. I don't know that it'll work, but let's see. And so I'd get them comfortable. I'd get them positioned in their bed or in a lazy boy chair. And I would begin my meditative practice with them. And so the first thing is that I'd say, bring yourself home, wherever home might be. And this was taught to me by a Tibetan Buddhist monk. And when they asked me to do that, I thought, where's home? I don't know where home is. I got my house, but that's not maybe home. And so I came to realize that there's places in us that are home and also places that we have been evicted from in our own body. So I would ask them to bring themselves home. And most of them settled on home being sort of heart-based. And then I'd have them follow their breath. Not only do they, breathing in, breathing out, get to oxygenate themselves, but that would give them a little bit more energy. And we'd breathe naturally. That would help them relax, tense body muscles and things like that. And then I'd have them come down to their toes and we would focus on the extremes of the body, the outer limits of our body, our toes, and then do a body scan all the way up to the top of our head. There's other parts to that, but it was replicating very much the impact of the relaxation response. And yet it was a body scan where we're just putting our attention, our intention and attitudes of something. I would leave people who had pain and were stressed and they would be resting deeply. Sometimes they'd fallen asleep and I'd say to them, I'd predict that and I'd say, I'll slip out. And then if you could journal for me what your experience was, and then I'll phone you later on, um, maybe tomorrow. So they had time to reflect on it, practice it. I'd ask them to do it two or three times a day if they could, just around eating time so that they would nourish themselves and then do this healing meditation. And over the course of time, I started to develop a family therapy model uh, that allowed people to do things like loving kindness meditation, meta in a family constellation of the family that they were leaving. It was shocking to me how well it worked. And I was used to talk therapy and I trained in lots of different family therapies. And then I started to use it on the teams that were seeing the dying. And I got permission to offer it over our lunch hours. So, you know, nobody was paying for us, but they gave permission for people to come to, to the group meditation. And we started to have a lot of staff show up and do the same practices as the person who was dying and have different kind of results that they felt energized. They felt that they had allowed themselves to speak about the suffering that they had encountered with their dying patients. And then when that group, the, the teams, met with the, the dying person and the family, they had a shared practice. And so people started to meditate at the deathbed, and people understood what they were doing, breathing in the suffering, breathing out healing, breathing in all that's been, and breathing out our hope for what will be. And bereavement changed based on this practice. Now, none of these people had a mindfulness meditation practice. John Kabat-Zinn was just doing his work. And we were at MBSR. And then Sindel Siegel and Pat Rockman brought in MBCT. So we had these parallel experiences. And I couldn't pause to do the research on it. But I, I tell the stories of it so people's imaginations can be captured. 
So the importance, I think, is resiliency, enhanced endurance. It's a moral compass for people around an intentional and purposeful life, rather than simply living in a narrative of what's wrong with me. What is resilience? So I don't know the answer to that, but I'll give you my personal answer to it. Having sat with you know thousands and thousands of people who came out of dying and death, were fully grieving, but also had a tremendous sense of the life force in them. Even the dying before they die, they would rally with joy and people would say, Michelle, what are you feeding them that they, you know, they look so good and they feel so good. I fed them life. And so resilience to me in my life is taking everything that ails us and we suffer with and trying very hard to sculpt it into something that we can companion with and live with. So if I had left suffering untreated, my pain untreated, I know for sure I'd be dead now. And so for me, resilience was these practices that for me mostly came up through my theological training. But then I exploded into these practices that were called mindfulness and mindfulness meditation and had me go and look for other compassion practices around the world. I believe that resilience is a natural state, and state means temporary in all of us. But to be able to take that to a trait, which means a more permanent part of us, is to ask the question again, how does a Russian mother or father get up in the morning knowing that their son or daughter may have been killed and her body or his body may never be found? And how does a Ukrainian family get up every day and hope that they're fighting for something for their children to inherit? Or how does a street person wake up and find that they've got no food and then somebody comes along with a Tim Hortons tea and a breakfast sandwich? I don't know what resiliency is, but I do believe it's compassion and action, whether it's compassion towards ourselves or to others. I believe it was random acts of kindness that was the fuel to my kindling of my mindfulness practice. And so it could be as simple as when I used to walk with canes and I had to take the subway because I didn't have a car and couldn't drive. And I'd walk onto a subway train and somebody older than me would get up and say, please take my seat. It was a sacrifice. It was a random act of kindness. And this just fueled my heart of there's still compassion in the world. So my resiliency is discovering wonder and awe and curiosity in the world, not necessarily happiness and joy, but wonder, curiosity, and awe. And it's everywhere to be found. And it's also within your body to be found, in relationships to be found, in food to be found and bitten into, in the animals that we live with, the trees that we live with, uh, nature that we live with. And even when there's, you know, very dark moments in time, like we have been living with, there is wonder to be found. You just have to let your attention go there and your intention to hold it and then to fill yourself with the feelings that come from that experience. Michelle, it's such a pleasure to have you on this podcast, on my show. Thank you for everything that you give to the world. And I'm truly grateful for you for our friendship and for your sharing. Thank you. And thank you, Fabio, for all your fabulous work. And I'm very glad you're in my life as well.
Michelle Chabon is now retired, but continues to teach mindfulness. If you wish to contact her, you may do so via email, shabonmichelle at gmail.com. That's C-H-A-B-A-N-M-I-C-H-E-L-E at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Stumbling Spirit, Contemplations on the Path of Resilience. This is Fabio Da Silva Fernandez. Join me again next week for another episode of transformative stories and beneficial practices to guide you on your wellness journey. If you wish, you can follow and DM me on Instagram at The Stumbling Spirit. Until next time, take a deep breath and another step forward on your path of resilience. Hey!